let's continue with what is in store that God has in store for us today. Last week, I also t- spoke, and uh, that message was titled, Worth the Wait. And I'll recap a few things we touched on for those of you that weren't here. I'll try to summarize uh, if I can. So when, when life hands us a season of waiting for something, we can slowly fall apart spiritually. Um, maybe if we only had to wait a few days, it wouldn't be so bad. But when that goes on for weeks and months and maybe years and maybe even decades, waiting for something that um, is just a desire of our hearts or that the Lord has even promised to us directly, uh, um, <clears throat> especially if maybe we just need an answer, but God isn't just giving us a yes or no. We're just waiting and wondering that those things put us at risk for kind of falling apart spiritually. And of course, God wants to be at work while we're waiting. He's not waiting for us to get that thing that we have in order to be fulfilled. He's at work right now, even in the middle of it. And he's at work in our transformation. And because we have an enemy, Satan, Satan is also going to be at work while we're waiting. And he's going to be hoping and rooting for our destruction. The actual process of waiting is going to change us, and hopefully we will take steps in the direction of the transformation of God instead of steps toward the destruction of Satan. But we probably all know people that have experienced destruction in their lives internally, mentally, spiritually, during times of waiting. In those times, our own self is being broken down, and we're ready for being shaped one way or the other. We're either going to walk away from God or draw nearer to him. Um, We also talked about one of the questions that gets us into trouble while we're waiting if we ask this question is why. Why is this happening? Why am I waiting? This question gets us into trouble because we aren't God. We aren't the all-knowing God. We don't have the big picture of the whole of eternity. And I speculate it's possible when we get to heaven, we may still not ever get a why answer, an answer to why for certain things that we think ought to have a why answer. Um, Jesus was asked a why question by the Pharisees. There was a blind man and he was asked, why is this man blind? Is it because he did something wrong? Because his parents or grandparents did something wrong? And Jesus didn't even answer that why question. He answered the question with a prediction of the future and of God's plan going forward, which is, my father is about to be glorified. This is happening for the glory of the Father. He doesn't dwell on figuring out the past or getting stuck there. He just states God's at work and here's what God is about to do as he's at work. So we can spin off of that and say that some questions that may be a little more useful for us if we're in a season of waiting are how is God at work? How will I wait? Who am I going to become while I'm waiting? We talked about how God values our holiness more than our happiness. And so we're going to get ourselves into trouble if we have an expectation that God's agenda on earth is a responsibility to keep us happy. And we talked about many biblical heroes of our faith who waited, some for decades, to see a promise fulfilled. Others of them we read about never even saw the promise of God come to pass in their own lifetime. It was fulfilled in generations that followed them. So while we're waiting... As our weight is changing us, and eventually one day when our weight is over, one way or the other, we find out this truth. It wasn't that thing 
you were waiting for that was worth the wait, it was you. It was me. It was the me that God has in mind. And waiting transformed me a little bit more into that person. I am worth the wait. You are worth the wait. Because of waiting, you are now more holy, hopefully more submitted, more broken, more restored than you were before you had to wait. So if we're wanting to cooperate with God's plan, with his transformation, or maybe if we just need a lifeline when we feel like we're drowning in waiting, what can we do? When life is handing us disappointment with God and seasons of waiting that are stretching on way, behind, way beyond what we think we can handle, we're going to need to develop a new set of spiritual survival skills. Psalm 25, 5 says, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you that you invite us to be transformed, that you love us exactly the way we are, and if we never did anything further that seemed good on earth, your love for us would be unchanged. And I thank you that you also invite us to become more loving, more loved, more full of you, and that you can use difficult times in our life to do that. I just pray that you will be with me today, be with us today, Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive what you want to speak to us individually. In your name we pray. Amen. There is a book that I mentioned. I'm looking at my PowerPoint like it's going to be there. Our internet was down this morning, so the PowerPoint didn't get delivered. So it's a good thing I didn't spend a whole lot of time creating it. Hopefully I'll just be exciting enough to keep you entertained. Um, but anyway, there's a book I referenced last week, and it's called When God Says Wait by an author named Elizabeth Lang Thompson. And in her book, she discusses what she calls spiritual survival skills for waiting. Some of these spiritual survival skills will resemble what we already would call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. And some others that she lists in the book, some of which we won't go into today, are just tips she has found useful in her own life or the lives of others around her. So today we're going to look at some of these spiritual survival skills, some lifelines we can pull on when we are feeling as if we're drowning in waiting or in difficult times of life. And we're also going to look at some biblical characters where we can observe these skills at work in their lives. So the first survival skill, spiritual survival skill number one, is show up to prayer. And the character we're going to look at is Hannah. And I'm going to read about a full chapter from 1 Samuel that talks about a section of Hannah's life. <clears throat> there once was a man who lived in Ramathame. He was descended from the old Zuf family in the Zeph Ephraim hills. His name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The first was Hannah. The second was Penina. Penina had children. Hannah did not. Every year, this man went from his hometown up to Shiloh to worship and offer a sacrifice to God. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as priests of God there in Shiloh. When Elkanah sacrificed, he passed helpings from the sacrificial meal around to his wife Penina and all her children, but he always gave an especially generous helping to Hannah because he loved her so much and because God had not given her children. But her rival wife taunted her cruelly rubbing it in, and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. This went on year after year. Every time she went to the sanctuary of God, she could be expected to be taunted. 
Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. Her husband Elkanah said, oh Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? And why are you so upset? I mean, really. Am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? So Hannah ate. Then she pulled herself together, slipped away quietly and entered the sanctuary. The priest Eli was on duty at the entrance to God's temple in the customary seat. I guess he was on greeter duty that day. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. Then she made a vow. Oh God, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely, unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy service. It so happened that as she continued in prayer before God, Eli was watching her closely. Hannah was praying in her heart silently. Her lips moved, but no sound was heard. Eli jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk. He approached her saying, you're drunk. How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. Hannah said, oh no, sir, please. I'm a woman hard used. I haven't been drinking not a drop of wine or beer. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart pouring it out to God. Don't for a minute think I'm a bad woman. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy and in such pain that I've stayed here so long. Eli answered her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked of him. Think well of me and pray for me, she said, and went her way. Then she ate heartily, her face radiant. Up before dawn, they worshiped God and returned home to Ramah. Elkanah slept with Hannah, his wife, and God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. Before the year was out, Hannah had conceived and given birth to a son. She named him Samuel, explaining, I asked God for him. When Elkanah next took his family on their annual trip to Shiloh to worship God, offering sacrifices and keeping his vow, Hannah didn't go. She told her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll bring him myself and present him before God, and that's where he'll stay for good. Elkanah said, do what you think is best. Stay home until you have weaned him. Yes, let God complete what he has begun. So she did. She stayed home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Then she took him up to Shiloh, and I'll just interject that the age of weaning at that time would have been much different than modern day, so he may have anywhere been between three and six years old. Uh, she took him up to Shiloh, bringing also the makings of a generous sacrificial meal, a prize bull, flour, and wine to be sent off. They first butchered the bull, then brought the child to Eli. Hannah said, excuse me, sir, would you believe I'm the very woman who is standing before you at this very spot praying to God? I prayed for this child. And God gave me what I asked for, and now I have dedicated him to God. He's dedicated to God for life. Then and there, they worshiped God. What was Hannah doing when she caught Eli's attention? Praying. It says she went up to the sanctuary of God year after year. How many years had she been praying in the temple before Eli noticed her that day? What had Hannah been doing every year, faithfully, knowing she would be taunted and tormented by her rival? When Samuel was born, she stayed home with him from that annual trip. So surely she could have stayed home in earlier years to avoid the taunts of Penina. Prayer secured the promise. 
that Hannah needed. Prayer paved the way for her to have her son, her miracle baby Samuel. So let's take these questions we've been discussing. How can we wait? Who are we becoming while we wait? And let's take a look at those in the context of Hannah. How did Hannah wait? Who was she becoming while she waited? So at that time, women had very little value outside of bearing and rearing children. To be a childless woman wasn't to be a career woman like today. They didn't have any other option. It was just to be a disgrace to the family and the community. The Bible states that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife and Penina his second wife. We could conjecture from this it's pretty likely that Elkanah married Penina only after some years had gone by in which Hannah did not bear children. So from day one, Penina's presence emphasizes Hannah's disgrace. If Hannah had born children by now, perhaps Eli would never have married a second woman. So how did Hannah wait? She waited tormented. She waited with patience on some days, tears on other days. She waited faithfully. She waited persistently, showing up in the temple each year, begging God to answer her cry for children. Under miserable circumstances, Hannah chose grace instead of jealousy. She used her lips for prayer instead of spite. Somehow, in all those years of waiting, in all those years of insult, she did not give up on prayer. She did not give up hope that God would one day answer and grant her a child. I've brought a few little things because sometimes um, looking at something can help us remember a point. So the best thing I come up, come up with for a point about prayer was knee pads because I was thinking about how the traditional thing about praying is you know, to get down on your knees, especially in front of an altar. And so... Um, you wouldn't normally be wearing knee pads in that position, but it, it reminded me of kneeling. So it reminded me of prayer. So um, anyway, that's what these are for. And I'll kind of, I'll pull one thing out for each of these points. This, so this show up to prayer visual is knee pads. So who was Hannah becoming while she waited? She was becoming a woman who persisted in prayer. A woman who could bear ridicule with grace. A woman who showed up to worship God even on her darkest days. A woman who committed to her marriage despite sharing her husband with her tormentor. A woman who soothed her grief by turning to prayer instead of turning to alcohol or other addictions. A woman who would be able to give up her firstborn son as a gift. Long before anyone knew, he would become one of the greatest priests Israel had ever had. A woman who could worship and bless God on the day she dedicated him and give him away. The Bible goes on to say that each year when Elkanah and his family returned to the temple, Hannah would bring a cloak she had made for Samuel. I'll put it here. If I put it down here, is that too low for the back to see? I don't know where to put it where you guys can see it, but anyway. And she would bring Samuel a cape that she had sewn for him that year because he kept growing. And he was wearing linen robes as the priests would wear, but she would bring him a, a cloak. And they would visit with, um, with Eli. And Eli would pray over Elkanah and Hannah and bless them and ask God to give them more children to replace the one they had given away. As the years passed, Hannah birthed three more boys and two girls. 
I'm sure that the mother she was to those five children was different. than the mother she would have been without her weight. When you have been waiting for a very long time, you will be tempted to stop praying. Pray anyway. You might think, I've already asked God for this five gazillion times. He must be sick of hearing from me. Pray anyway. You might have to get creative to feel connected. Take a walk, sit outside, find someone to pray with you, write down your prayers. But don't give up on prayer during this time. These are the times we need prayer more than ever. Our prayers during waiting will forge our hearts to be able to live the promise of God when it comes in its fulfillment. What if the blessing of God came to Hannah the very first time she asked? What if that gift that she was going to receive of a son, what if her arms wouldn't be strong enough to hold? What if our arms wouldn't be strong enough to hold God's gift until we've done the heavy weightlifting of prayerfully waiting? What if the path God will be asking us to walk requires the skill of persistent prayer that we're learning as we wait. Survival skill number two, show up to worship. And we're going to talk about David, King David. So I grabbed a tambourine. They actually had tambourines at that time. I'm sure they did not look like this made from plastic. But they did use tambourines. It's one of the instruments referenced in the Bible. So this is our memory of David and how he showed up to worship. And that's a a spiritual survival skill, say that five times fast, that we can use also in seasons of waiting. So David was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse. He was anointed king by the priest Samuel, a grown-up version of the Samuel that we just learned about, the son of Hannah. The historian Josephus, who is a writer outside of the Bible, but one that a lot of people reference as being reliably accurate historically, his works. He says David was 10 years old when he was anointed king of Israel. Other modern commentaries, commentarians believe he may have been closer to age 15. He began to rule the tribe of Judah when he was about 30 years old. After seven years as king of Judah, the tribes of Israel also acknowledged him as king. So using the most conservative number from these estimates, David waited 15 years between his anointing and his first coronation. If we use the earlier date, excuse me, and we draw it forward to his second coronation of the unified Israel, that brings his waiting season to 27 years. Psalm 52.9 says this, I will give thanks to you forever, God. You have done it, and I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. When I was doing some reading on the life of David, I obviously was reading the scripture, and I also just kind of went searching around the internet to see what different people had to say. And I came across this one website, biblestudy.org, and they begin their little blurb about David with this question. Why did David have to wait to become king of Israel and take over the throne from Saul? So I hope you've been here long enough to know that why did David wait is the wrong question. Why is going to get us nowhere but frustration and despair? So let's ask our more helpful questions again. How did David wait? Who was he becoming as he waited? Because that, if you think about that, I guess maybe it could answer the why. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, God tells Samuel, the grown-up priest who was given to the temple when he was a boy, to go to the house of Jesse, David's dad, and to lead Jesse's family in sacrifice and worship. 
God tells Samuel, while you're there, I'm going to instruct you which of Jesse's sons that you're going to anoint as the next king of Israel. Saul had already been anointed, um, which we actually talked about Saul last week. Uh, but he had messed up pretty badly. He was asked to wait for seven days, and he couldn't do it. And so the throne was taken away from him, and God uh, chose someone else, which would be David. So at this point, Samuel doesn't know it's David yet. He just knows, I'm going to go to the house of Jesse. He's got a bunch of sons. One of them, God's going to tell me to anoint. So I'm going to read um, about half a chapter from First uh, Samuel 16. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and said, Here he is, God's anointed. But God told Samuel, Looks aren't everything. Don't be impressed with his looks and stature. I've already eliminated him. God judges persons differently than humans do. Men and women look at the face. God looks into the heart. Jesse then called up Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. Samuel said, This man isn't God's choice either. Next, Jesse presented Shema. Samuel said, no, this man isn't either. Jesse presented all his seven sons to Samuel. Samuel was blunt with Jesse. God hasn't chosen any of these. Then he asked Jesse, is this it? Are there no more sons? Uh, well, yes, there's the runt. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel ordered Jesse, go get him. We're not moving from this spot until he's here. Jesse sent for him. He was brought in, the very picture of health bright-eyed, good-looking. God said, up on your feet, anoint him, this is the one. Samuel took his flask of oil and anointed him, with his brothers standing around watching. The Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, God vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. So as we talked about earlier, after this moment, somewhere between 15 to 22, 27 years transpires. These years are documented in great detail in the Bible, in the book of 1 Samuel. And I'll kind of try to summarize them so we can get some perspective and about how David waited. David takes the job working for King Saul. He is alternating between working for King Saul, playing music to help him calm down because he was a very disturbed man, and going back home and tending his father's sheep. The Bible even says that it was David's job to find someone to care for his sheep while he was gone. So he didn't just leave it to you know, whoever, or abandon the sheep. He was also taking responsibility for that. During that time, there's a war that breaks out with the Philistines, and David kills the 10-foot-tall Goliath, a man who was big and strong enough to be wearing 127 pounds of bronze armor. David becomes best friends with King Saul's son, Jonathan. David eventually becomes a powerful military leader in Saul's army. Everywhere he goes, he wins the battle. His troops win. His prowess uh, at war earns him the love and praise of the people of Israel. This infuriates the jealous King Saul. David thinks he's just trying to do a good job out there fighting in the war, and Saul's getting madder and madder because they're winning. Soon, Saul is so jealous, he is trying to take David's life with his own hands. Then he relents. Then he tries to kill David again. Then he enlists soldiers to kill David, and his son Jonathan talks him out of it. Then he tries to kill David again. Then he relents. Then he enlists more soldiers to kill David, and Saul's daughter, Michael, who is David's wife at that point, warns him, and David escapes. So after all this craziness that's gone on for several years, and all this unpredictable behavior coming from Saul, David becomes a fugitive. He runs from the city. He hides to save his life. And he waits in the desert, moving from place to place, so that Saul and his army have a really hard time figuring out where exactly they're at. 
And he's out there wondering what part of his faithful service to Saul brought him to this point of running and hiding like a criminal. About 10 years go by in this manner. Saul and his army intermittently pursuing David, giving up. David constantly moving and hiding and fighting. David having several opportunities to take Saul's life, the man who's trying to kill him, and decides not to. Eventually, Saul and his son Jonathan die in a battle with enemies of Israel, and David becomes king of Judah, which is about half of the land. Saul's right-hand man, Abner, continues as a military leader for Israel, fighting against David's men and his kingship over Judah. That goes on seven more years. Finally, Abner surrenders, and David becomes king over the unified Judah and Israel. Samuel chapter 16 says this, So here is what you are to tell my servant David. God has this word for you. I took you from the pasture, tagging along after sheep. I made you prince over my people Israel. I was with you everywhere you went and mowed your enemies down before you. Now I'm making you famous to be ranked with the great names on earth. So how did David wait? I think it should be easy to imagine the myriad of emotions David would have experienced during all those waiting years and fugitive years. He wrote many of those emotions down in the Psalms, so we don't have to imagine it. And he voiced for generations to come the heartache and confusion of waiting on God. Over the years, David became a master at bringing his intense feelings to God and working through them in a righteous way. Heartache and hurt drove David closer to God, not farther away. Psalm 109 is one of the many psalms written by David uh, during this difficult time of his life. Oh God, my Lord, step in. Work a miracle for me. You can do it. Get me out of here. Your love is so great. I'm at the end of my rope. My life is in ruins. I'm fading away to nothing, passing away. My youth gone, old before my time. I'm weak from hunger. I can hardly stand. My body a rack of skin and bones. I'm a joke in poor taste to those who see me. They take one look and shake their heads. Help me, oh help me God, my God. Save me through your wonderful love. Then they'll know your hand is in this, that you, God, have been at work. Let them curse all they want. You do the blessing. Let them be jeered by the crowd when they stand up, followed by cheers for me, your servant. Dress my accusers in clothes dirty with shame, discarded, and humiliating old ragbag clothes. My mouth is full of great praise for God. I'm singing his hallelujahs surrounded by crowds. For he is always at hand to take the side of the needy, to rescue a life from the unjust judge. The Psalms introduce us and invite us to enter into an entirely different kind of prayer and worship. God put this worship in the Bible, and he didn't do it by accident. He didn't insert disclaimers after the harsh words that David and other psalmists write. Even Jesus, in his final hours on the cross, spoke from David's psalms to express his own anguish. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why is all of this in the psalms? Why did David write, and why did David wait, and what was he doing? How was he becoming? He was becoming someone who was going to write all of this. <laughs> And it's in there because God says, I get it. I get the full scope of your emotion. You're righteous and unrighteous. I want to hear about it. I can take it. These prayers that are found in the Psalms question God, but they don't accuse. They stop short of pointing the finger. 
They don't say, I charge you of wrongdoing, God. I am angry with you. I resent your decisions and authority. I give up on you. Instead, they maintain respect for God's authority versus their own humanity and acknowledging their own limited perspective and power. So how did David wait? He waited by worshiping. Many psalms are desperate cries for help and vengeance on his enemies. Many more are gratitude and honor for a faithful God. David is overflowing with thankfulness and praise for God when he experiences victory or peace. So even as you beg God for your desire, even as you pray on your knee pads, make a point to end your prayers with worship, with gratitude, with honor. This can transform your perspective. Praising God reminds us of his power. Gratitude reminds us of his goodness. These things express our worship, praise and gratitude. Praise and gratitude protect our hearts and restore our hope during difficult times. David fought many enemies in his life, but God wasn't one of them. By fighting alongside God, not against him, David enjoyed worship as a lifelong refuge, a haven where he could wait and get through those lonely wilderness years. You and I can experience the same. When you're waiting... If you've done it before, you know what I'm talking about. There are days when you just want to hole up in your room with your sad thoughts. Worshiping God, especially in a congregational setting like this one or a small group, might feel like the worst idea in the world. How could joyful songs come from a heart filled with loss? Don't give in to that lie. Worship can minister to you in ways you don't even know you need. God wants to meet us at an emotional level, And worship is one of the ways he draws us out and connects with us at our emotional level. Worship can be even more powerful when God feels distant or when our prayer life seems stopped up. For myself, during a dark season of my life in college, because of my walk with God and my walk with my family and church over the years, I knew God existed. There was no way I could ever doubt that. But at that time, it was very dark for me, and I couldn't feel his presence at an emotional level. The only time that I sensed the presence of God with me was when I would sit in a piano in the university practice rooms and play. When I would worship, I would find him again. Sometimes worship can even correct our thinking. Worship reminds us that God is God. We are not. Worship helps us understand his love and accept it. Worship helps us appeal to God at times we don't know how to pray. Worship can help us heal worship can help us wait. All right, survival skill number three. Show up for time in God's word, and we're going to talk about Timothy. God's word is the cord that keeps us connected to his voice. Even if his presence is far away or his voice in our ears seems silent, God has spent a lot of time talking to you right here. So don't worry, if you can't hear him, you can find his voice right here. If it feels like you're stuck in a pit of despair, you might relate to to one of David's descriptions. I feel as if I'm in a valley of shadow of death. But even during those times, God's word says, this is a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. Here's a beautiful one from Lamentations. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassion, they are new every morning. 
great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. If you're feeling weary today, doesn't that verse just lift you up? Just take a deep breath and roll your shoulders back and say, oh, the Lord is with me. He is my portion. I will wait for him. He is good to those whose hope is in him. We can return to these passages and many, many more that we find here in God's word when our faith grows weary. And this breath of fresh air coming from his words, it brings to our heart. It's almost instantaneous. Just let it soak in. God's word can lift our eyes off of our problems and lift them up to heaven, reviving our hope, reminding us of his love. So Timothy is a New Testament character at the time of Paul the Apostle. He is the son of a Greek Gentile father and a Jewish mother. His mother brought him up in Jewish, Jewish tradition, and then he came to Christ under the teachings of Paul. Paul began mentoring and training Timothy for leadership in the early churches, even when he was too young, considered by some, to be, coming, to be entering into leadership. Eventually, Timothy became a deacon or a pastor. The, uh, the commentators are, don't really agree, but it doesn't really matter. He was a leader in the church. And he also traveled with Paul on some of his uh, trips throughout Asia Minor. The books of First and Second Timothy are letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, giving him instructions to help him lead the churches. And here's a little bit that we can hear, uh, read about Timothy. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 1. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you, rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. And then from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Teach these things. Make sure everyone learns them well. Don't let anyone think little of you because you are young. Be their ideal. Let them follow the way you teach and live. Be a pattern for them in your love, your faith, and your clean thoughts. Until I get there, read and explain the scriptures to the church. Preach God's word. So during his childhood, Timothy was trained in the scriptures by his mother and his grandmother. The Hebrew tra tradition and knowledge of Yahweh, understanding of God's teaching, were his roots ever since he was a boy. His mother Eunice did convert to Christianity as well, perhaps around the same time as Timothy did, under the teaching of Paul. So as an adult, Paul has to leave, and he asked Timothy, hold down the fort for me. Keep the peace in the church. I'll be back. And there Timothy is, apparently too young, according to many people around him, waiting, having to keep things together for Paul to come back, not being 
the man that Paul was, but being himself. And one of the key instructions that Paul gives him on how to do that is to keep the peace by reading and explaining scripture to the church. During Timothy's wait as a child, as a young man, he practiced diligence, he valued education, he kept God's word at the forefront. To read and explain the scriptures to people requires a great deal of time spent studying in the scriptures. So Timothy would have needed to saturate himself in God's word and in the sound doctrine discussed by Paul to reflect that back to the churches. And who was Timothy becoming while he waited? A church planter, a pastor, a preacher, one filled with power and boldness, one who could overcome ridicule and scorn with the love of God, one who disciplined himself to dedicate effort to the things of God. He was becoming a man deeply rooted in faith. That faith would carry him through many cities and countries after this point as he served alongside Paul. He would help Paul plant the churches in Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea. He would serve as a deacon or a coach or pastor for a total of five different New Testament churches. Timothy's deep roots in the word of God would carry him through opposition within the church, outside the church, through imprisonment, and eventually, at the end of his life, through martyrdom. From Timothy, we can learn that seasons that are spent in waiting and in training and in serving under a mentor can lead to fruit as we grow into the shoes God has set out for us. Survival skill number four. Show up for self-reflection. Uh, this is the best I could come up with, y'all. Magnifying glass. Self-reflection is not something we understand uh, very well in the church. It's kind of growing so, uh, this idea of self-awareness or self-reflection. And the idea that as we learn about ourselves, we learn about what God is doing in us, what Satan is doing in us. We become aware of our own hearts, and then we can submit our hearts and ourselves more fully to God's plan. So the magnifying glass is just representing that, that digging in. Um, I think a lot of times it's easy to just shield our hearts and not pay attention to what's really happening inside of us um, because it can be painful to uncover what is really inside of our heart. Psalm 37, 6 through 8 says this, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Do not fret, rest, wait patiently, forsake wrath, do not fret. How do we know when we are fretting? Have you ever stopped to notice your own worry and agitation? Like you're just being agitated, but you stop to notice that you're agitated and to consider what's going on in your mind or your heart and inquire of yourself, what exactly is bothering me so much right now? If we can investigate that a little bit, we could take that, those fretful thoughts that we're having and submit them to the Lord. All right, we're going to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is from Luke chapter 1. Well, I have 10 minutes left, don't I? No? I'm not rushing. 
I mean, I probably have 10 minutes left. I don't have an hour left. But I can stop. I guess three. I've done three and I have three. Okay, there you go. You can wait for Mary next week. You better come. It'll be good. <laughs> wait, that's right. <laughs> okay, so let me get these back out. All right, prayer, worship, the word. If you haven't heard about those, at some point in your walk with Christ, you, I don't know, you were living in a hole. But we need to remember when, when we're waiting, these are not just something you ought to be doing. They are a tool that's going to help you hang on. They are part of God's plan that he put into place for you to grab onto and pull on that lifeline uh, and, and something to do besides fretting. <laughs> um, so this tambourine is kind of noisy, so I'm going to put this stuff down again. All right, well, I, won't read, I won't read my ending because I'm going to have to save it for next week. But um, what I will do is just invite us to uh, consider those three things this week. If you're, last week when I said, is anybody waiting and you need the power of God while you're waiting, at least half of the people here stood up. So if that's you, um, then consider those tools and see what you can do about grabbing onto one of those lifelines this week and, and pulling hard on them to bring you back into a place of peace while you're waiting. Okay? Um, let's just all stand together and, and pray, and then we'll, there'll be time for ministry after. Lord, I just thank you for um, these stories in the Bible that we have of, of Hannah, who waited many, many years under such torment um, before your promise was fulfilled for her. Lord, she persisted in prayer even while she was being shamed inside her own home. And David he was able to worship you while he was a fugitive hiding out for his life and waiting to become king for decades going by. And for Timothy, who spent time in God's word as a child, as a young man, as a young leader, um, applying the truths of God to his life. And studying God's word so that it could be revealed to those around him. I just thank you for what we can learn from these, uh, these characters. I thank you for who that they became because they waited and for who you are becoming us as we wait, if we cooperate with you and participate with you in your plan. We just invite you, God, to have your way. We, we desire more of you. We desire more of what you're doing at work in our lives, or we yearn for you. Thank you for these lifelines you extended to us, and um, give us the strength to grab on. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you would like us in prayer and ministry, come on up here to the front, and um, there will be folks up here to pray with you. It doesn't have to be related to what was said today, or it can be, but um, there will be folks to just listen to you and pray with you about what's going on in your life right now. So be blessed. 
We'll see you next week.